IDF commander Motegur said, The Temple Mount is in our hands. 56 years ago, he was announcing Jerusalem's reunification under Israeli sovereignty to the world. On Thursday this week, tens of thousands of marchers marked that announcement with the annual Jerusalem Day flag parade through the Old City. Singing, dancing, and causing a ruckus along the way, parts of the mostly under 30, largely male crowd can act like a tinderbox eager for a spark. But this year, perhaps taking a page out of the judicial overhaul protests, a group of left-wing activists blocked a main artery from the West Bank's block of Gush Etzion to prevent marchers from reaching the capital. This push-pull political situation in Israel is the stuff scholars dream of. And for Dr. Sarah Hirschhorn, an American historian and public intellectual who focuses on the Israeli ultranationalist movement, her research visit to the Holy Land couldn't have been better timed. We sat together this week and in our wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the increasing extremist symbolism of the Jerusalem Day flag march. We also drilled down on how Israel's far-right parties are now considered mainstream and in the Knesset's coalition. And we discussed how simply envisioning what the world would look like the day after peace breaks out may be just what we need to actually get there. This week, I, Amanda Borchel Dunn, ask Dr. Sarah Hirschhorn, what matters now? Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today in the Nomi Studios, our Israel Story Partner Podcast Studios. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to see you in person after so long that you haven't been able to come to Israel. And I'm very, very pleased to have this conversation with you today. We are facing on Thursday, one of the more controversial days of the year. And I'm talking about Jerusalem Day celebrations of the March of the Flags. So I ask you, Sarah, in this week of controversy and conflict, what matters now? I think what matters now is what's going to happen on Yom Yerushalayim on Thursday, um, which will affect not only domestic politics and the uh, precarious coalition that Netanyahu has assembled and needs to keep intact in order to pass his budget by the end of the month, but also a very possible escalation that will affect uh, local, regional, and international geopolitics. 
as the listeners can hear, we are recording a couple of days ahead of Jerusalem Day. But all signs are go. It's very, very likely that this march will happen and be uh, protected by over 2,000 police and security members. Of course, we need to remind our audience that the national security minister is none other than Itamar Ben-Gvir, who himself has said that he will take part in this controversial day. What, first of all, makes this day so controversial? Well, I think this day has become more and more controversial over time. Uh, Jerusalem Day began in 1968, uh, you know, the first year after the quote-unquote reunification of Jerusalem, and used to be a much more pluralistic and widespread phenomenon amongst Israelis of all uh, stripes and, and stars, we could say, um, you know, religious and secular from Ashkenazi and Mizrahi backgrounds, and, you know, many other groups that were, uh, you know, that participated uh, for decades and decades. In recent years, the march, particularly the march through the Muslim quarter of the old city, has become increasingly fraught and controversial. And the participation of ultranationalist activists, some of which, of course, have now become members of Knesset, like Itamar Ben Gvir, um, have made the day uh, much more political than religious and have certainly changed the tenor of the whole uh, celebration. Of course, the participation of Itamal Bengvil in 2021, alongside some of his other activities in East Jerusalem, certainly heightened tensions and led to a significant escalation, one that I fear might re-trigger the end of this ceasefire that just took place only a few days ago. Right. As you mentioned, the 2021 march led to an 11-day conflict with Hamas. But do you actually really have great concerns that it will respark the violence? I think so, because uh, if I ask an average Israeli what they think of Jerusalem Day, they might, you know, imagine themselves waving flags in Gansaka, a major park in Jerusalem, and having barbecues and uh, celebrating the spirit of living in Jerusalem. But if I asked anybody on social media what their image of Jerusalem Day is, it's that famous photo from 2021 that looked like a bunch of ultra-nationalist youth activists dancing in front of the Kotel with the Al-Aqsa Mosque burning behind it. Now, we know, of course, that that was... Uh, kind of a false flag, that that wasn't the Al-Aqsa Mosque on fire. That was a tree that had caught flame and it just appeared that way in the photo. But certainly, I think if you ask anybody uh, on social media, you know, what is Jerusalem Day to them? It's that image. I think it's that image also for people who live here in Jerusalem in, in many respects. It's no longer, I believe uh, myself, it is no longer this uh, happy day of celebration. It is instead being I don't know, co-opted by the National Religious Party. So let's talk about this co-option and when did that actually begin? Well, I think it began a bit earlier than uh, than the appearance of Itamal Ben-Gvil in 2021. It's been going on over the last decade, um, not only uh, on Jerusalem Day, but on other other uh, holy days or other uh, days of national celebration and just generally the presence of activist youth in the streets of Jerusalem uh, has escalated over the last several years, and sometimes there's been clash clashes with police or with other peace activists. So this isn't necessarily new, but I think that Jerusalem Day, because of its significance to the religious Zionist community, has become a kind of focus of attention. Um, and the parade of the flags that's marched through the old city has become kind of a convenient symbol to organize um, sympathizers to this message. Let's describe the march a little bit more. There are tens of thousands of mostly youth, mostly national religious. It's somewhat sex segregated, and it's uh, in a way an excuse for youth to behave badly. Explain a little bit more what I mean. 
So I'm going to agree with you that I've actually never been myself, at least to the part that marches through the old city, because I don't necessarily feel that it's a, a particularly uh, female uh, uh, or gender uh, gender neutral space. It's very much an activity that not only is very political, but also seems quite macho and kind of the you know toxic masculinity of Jewish power is also an element of this whole flag parade. And as you said, it's also a lot of really young people, which is true of a lot of these ultranationalist groups, um, people who both live in the settlements, but also within territorial Israel that are gravitating towards these groups because they have charismatic leaders and because it's a place to hang out, especially if your home life isn't as stable or as uh, you know happy as one might hope. And I think that um, some, some of the people who participate aren't even necessarily attracted to the march or to these groups because of ideology, but because of social and, you know, um, demographic reasons. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't want people to get the, the wrong impression. What we're, what we're trying to drill down here is the repercussions of the, the, yeah, the co-option of it by the National Religious Party, which also is not a bad thing, but the ramifications and the, the ripples of, uh, let's just say it outright, racism that goes through the march, at least in, in clips that I've seen and in talking with people who have been to several of these marches. I think it's very intimidating, particularly to, um, you know, members of the Jerusalem community that live in the Muslim quarter or other parts of the old city who are not Jewish and don't, you know, don't necessarily look upon the reunification of Jerusalem or that captured the city of Jerusalem in the 1967 war in the same way that the Jewish community who lives in uh, the city of Jerusalem may feel. And um, also, I think that uh, over the years, it's become less of a pluralistic holiday uh, for many other streams of Judaism who want to participate in this. I've now seen on, you know, just anecdotally on the internet that there's lots of other alternative activities for people who want to celebrate Jerusalem Day and feel, you know, really deep religious and political significance to this moment and want to reclaim it for themselves in a way that seems uh, a little bit more... Uh, open and diverse. Uh, but the march itself, I think, has become much more narrow and even we might say fringe, though, you know, what was used to be fringe is now in the Knesset. So it's hard to, um, you know, describe it that way. But I don't feel that the march itself um, has become um, or has is, is the same kind of activity that once was. On the other hand, we do see some other groups that are really trying to reinforce a different kind of message, particularly Tug Me'il, which is, um, you know, which is a riff on the uh, on the uh, word tag mechil, price tag operation. They are calling it a kind of, uh, you know, a brightening or a, uh, you know, I guess a, a, a more inclusive uh, kind of movement. And they often go to the uh, go to the uh, parade um, or alongside the parade and hand out flowers and candy to residents of the old city to try and reinforce the message that this is a city for everyone, even if the political idea of the unification of Jerusalem is very controversial. So I think there is a opportunities to try to um, take back the streets in a way from uh, the, what the what the parade has become. But I think it's it's less and less of what it used to be 50 years ago, which was just a mass celebration of the city of Jerusalem and, you know, access to the old city, which, of course, was at that time new and novel for the Jewish community in Jerusalem. Let's talk about what you just alluded to, that the fringe politicians have now become major players in the Knesset. And I would argue that this, in a way, started happening quite a while ago, even with former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, perhaps even prior to that. 
So how did these settler leaders become such major forces in Israeli politics? Well, it's a long transition. Um, of course, this starts back in the 1970s when the Mafdal or the National Religious Party became uh, part of the governing coalition for the first time when, with the election of Menachem Begin and the rise of uh, the right in Israel, which you know basically changed the political map from a very Ashkenazi, socialist, Zionist-focused Zionism of the 1948 to 1977 period. And the Mafdal, which of course at that time was a party of religious Zionists who had, you know, were just beginning to see the impact of the Israeli settler movement in 1977 and began to kind of grow some of their ideas now that they were in power. But I think things changed significantly in the decade of the 1990s with with opposition to the Oslo peace process, which, you know, brought some figures to the national stage. We might remember that even Itamar Ben-Gavir himself was a youth activist in those days, was out in the streets of Jerusalem, uh, you know, crusading against the Oslo Accords and kind of cut his teeth in those years. And we can point to many other figures who have a kind of similar trajectory. And certainly in the last, you know, several years with the decline of the peace process um, and the almost exclusive reign of Benjamin Netanyahu, Yahoo, um, I think that actually, ironically, has given room on the right for other figures to appear to Netanyahu's right uh, to try to steal the thunder a bit from his, you know, presence as the staunch uh, Mr. Security image because, uh, you know, there really hasn't been any other uh, prime minister than most young people in Israel know. And I think many settler leaders feel it's time for them to have, you know, get their due and also to stand in opposition to some of Netanyahu's politics. Before we talk about Itmar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich, who also must be mentioned, let's talk a little bit more about the image of Naftali Bennett, who was, we should remind people, was the leader of the Yesha, of the, the Settler Umbrella Organization. So Natalie Bennett actually has a really interesting biography for someone who became uh, a settler leader, just like we might consider Theodore Herzl as being like an unlikely forerunner of, you know, modern Zionism. I think we can also see Natalie Bennett in the same way as being kind of an unlikely forefather of the Mafdal or the new reincarnation of the National Religious Party, because, you know, he himself... Um, you know, has, uh, you know, came from a diaspora background. His parents are American Jews who moved to Israel from California. Um, you know, he speaks English fluently. He wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, entirely raised solely in the Israeli tradition. He has other roots in other places. Um, and he his you know, cred um, on religious uh, lifestyle issues, I think, at the time and still even today is a little thin. You know, he wears a very small kippah. Uh, you know, he he his uh, strict observance of religious practice, I think, is uh, um, perhaps in question. Um, and he lives in Lanana. He doesn't live out in the settlements. He uh, and he comes from a business background. He's a multi-millionaire, maybe possibly a gazillionaire, who really uh, cut his teeth in the high-tech movement and not as a youth activist in Oslo or any of the other places that we might see settler leaders going about. But I think he has... Uh, you know, from his professional life, has a great deal of organizational savvy and is a good networker um, and has also shown, I think, even in the last government, a great ability to be a leader and to uh, work across the aisle, as we might say, in the United States while still um, retaining the integrity of his beliefs. Now, we might not agree with his beliefs, but I think that he uh, was able to do both in the last government. 
So he's considered a traitor by many of the current settler movement because, of course, he made a coalition with an Islamic party, Ra'am. And not only because of that, I think. I think he also uh, portrays a different persona than the settler movement is currently looking for, which led to the vacuum which led to the rise of the Religious Zionism Party and also Otsma Yehudit. Let's talk first about Religious Zionism, Bezalel Smotrich, and what does he signify? He was, of course, the founder of Regavim. So talk about Regavim to begin with. So first, I just want to say that I think Naftali Bennett kind of got a little bit of a bad rap here. I don't think that he necessarily sold out his ideals, but he was perceived as being selling out his ideas by, by you know, forming this broad-based coalition. Um, you, uh, so we don't know what he might have done had he stayed in power. But certainly, he his uh, his actions were seen as a betrayal of, uh, you know, the movement's ideals and um, of, you know, greater Israel and ultra-nationalist values. So um, he wasn't, you know, he, of course, now is out of politics and other people like Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich who are seen to be more faithful to, uh, you know, who are more of the party faithful are seen to be uh, those who, who can be relied upon to push forward this agenda. So Bezalel Smotrich, um, uh, um, you know, is still a relatively young man. So he's done quite a lot in his very short uh, career, but one of the things that he was very actively involved in is an NGO called Megavim, which is straddles kind of the political and legal uh, vanguard of the Israeli settler movement. No longer the kind of old school Yesha uh, council approach of having an umbrella organization of settlements and different regional and municipal councils that will govern these affairs, but a kind of think tank slash uh, activist platform that is going to try and um, shake up the old way of doing things. And they um, were able, I think, to insert a lot of policy ideas and uh, platforms into the government and into the legal process regarding the settlements and um, could kind of be seen alongside the Kohelet Forum as being another real force in Israel, although one that maybe is a little bit more homegrown than Kohelet, which has, you know, roots and donors in the United States. Legavim is much more local um, and young uh, and uh, is definitely working very hard on the ground to transform the map um, in the West Bank. So let's talk about Itamar Ben-Gvir and to me, he kind of seems like filling the space of the disruptor. You agree with that? I, I think he is. Um, I think also his background is very different from inside of small church. He comes from a Tunisian immigrant background. He's Mizrahi. Um, you know, he hasn't necessarily had, um, you know, some of the, I guess, uh, privileges of, you know, growing up within the elite that uh, Bitsada Smotrich and some of his colleagues in the Gavim have. Um, so he comes sort of as a disruptor or an outsider, or, you know, he may be a kind of maverick character in Israeli politics. Um, but he also is able to organize a lot of, you know, younger, disaffected, particularly Mizrahi voters um, and some now Chaldal voters, people who are sort of on the fringe between the Haredi or ultra-Orthodox world and the national religious world, um, who really haven't had a space for themselves in traditional 
uh, national religious, religious Zionism, settler politics, which has also been, you know, heavily dominated by an Ashkenazi elite, um, you know, people who sort of resemble uh, the Bitsado small churches of the world. Um, and this is a new opportunity for people who have a different, um, you know, a different uh, ethnic and social background to be involved in politics. And I think Itamal Ben Gvil has, you know, really inserted himself very forcefully in that way. Of course, you know, we don't need to talk about his very controversial trajectory to getting to that position. Um, you know, he didn't serve in the IDF. He was convicted on terrorism charges. He obviously was a youth activist and a major, um, you know, a major figure known as kind of a troublemaker, you know, throughout his youth. Um, but that has certainly appealed to a lot of um, a lot of Israelis who see themselves on the sidelines too and want to, you know, get into Knesset just like Itamar Gaben has. The bad boy image in a way. Before we move on, do drill down on Ben Gvir's trajectory. You talked about him as this activist youth, but it's more than that. He was a Kahana follower. Talk to us about this element. So um, I think, as I had mentioned, Itamal Ben Gvir is the son of Tunisian immigrants who grew up on the outskirts of Jerusalem now in what is, you know, considered very gentrified real estate. But back in the day was a very, um, you know, I think, kind of rough transition for many Mizrahi immigrants who arrived in Israel in the 60s. And, you know, he grew up and was very much radicalized by movements that he associated himself with. He, you know, he denies it today, but is certain that he was a pretty proud Kahanist, a follower of Rabbi Meir Kahana, the ultra-nationalist uh, xenophobic rabbi from the United States who immigrated to Israel in the 1970s and, amongst other groups, you know, tried to mobilize young Mizrahi men to join his movement. Um, he was a street protester. He was arrested any number of times on, you know, disturbances of the peace and terrorist charges. Um, um, and was convicted on, uh, I believe, 11 of these counts, though don't quote me on that. Uh, and, you know, he had uh, and he became a follower of uh, other, you know, violent members in the movement. Uh, you know, he famously had a, um, a, a poster of Baruch Goldstein, the perpetrator of the uh, 1994 uh, massacre at the tomb of the patriarchs Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron up on his wall until some journalists caught hold of it and you know he took it down for public relations reasons but he certainly was very deeply involved in that kind of politics in his youth um, he did not serve in the army um, you know, which is the traditional trajectory of young Israeli men because the IDF itself uh, rejected him as a candidate feeling that he was far too unstable to be you know given a gun uh, in on support of the you know on behalf of the state of Israel given his background um, um, he did go to university. He became a lawyer and uh, spent the early years of his professional career defending clients who had been accused of settler terrorism. Um, and then he uh, transitioned from these kind of activist activities to uh, becoming more involved in party politics and eventually kind of founding Otzma Yudit uh, and becoming a member of Knesset. Now, Kahana himself was in the Knesset in his Kach party, which was eventually barred from the Knesset for racism. Uh, do you see that Itmar Ben-Gvir has learned any lessons from his, shall we say, mentor? Absolutely. I mean, Mayor Kahana probably uh, is the most 
uh, important American immigrant to Israel uh, since uh, since 1948. And I say that with great hesitancy because uh, I can think of many more illustrious uh, members of the Israeli society who have contributed in other ways. But unfortunately, I think Kahana has had a profound impact on a whole generation of people. Um, you know, right around the time that Isamar Ben-Gvir was born, uh, I guess uh, Mayor Kahana was making his first runs to for Knesset in the late 1970s and then succeeding uh, in getting it to Knesset as the sole member of uh, representing the Koch party in 1984 um, and then eventually being having his party banned um, uh, um, under you know charges of racism and incitement to violence uh, in 1988 uh, but his reverberations you know both in activist circles as well as the idea, understanding that one could transition from activist politics to, to party politics was really significant for a whole generation um, of ultranationalist uh, youth um, and also that Kahana organized largely amongst young men, particularly young Mizrahi men who found themselves disfranchi- disenfranchised from traditional, dare I say it, Ashkenazi party politics, um, was also kind of a, a route to the Knesset for someone like Itamar ben I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like, my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their, like, blankie their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. I have this theory that uh, the disengagement essentially reset the settler movement in many ways. And and these young people that we've been discussing, young and in quotes, young to me, they're younger than I am. So these young people, Bezala Smotrich, Itamar Ben-Gvir, others, are thinking in a different strategic mindset than the settler movement had prior to disengagement and, and working in the system in a very different way. Would you agree? I think so. Although I think it goes beyond um, them and 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 that um, you know that sort of part of the ideological spectrum. I think everybody has had to rethink um, the whole uh, the whole idea of territorial disengagement after the Hitnat Kut because. Um, Maybe it wasn't foreseen or maybe it was. We still don't know because the archives for these kinds of, you know, questions are not yet open. And, you know, eventually historians and scholars will have a lot more information about what Aliyah Sharon envisioned and, you know, what they thought the likely outcome was going to be. But 
we all know today that in 2006, Hamas took over the, the Gaza Strip and is, you know, in addition to persecuting the Gazan people, has also been using the Gaza Strip as a launch pad for rockets against Israel. And I don't know that, uh, you know, the same calculations about territorial withdrawals can ever be made again in the same way, given what happened. And, you know, that kind of sense of failure um, to achieve, you know, two states living side by side, you know, has completely reshaped the whole political process. Um, also, I think young activists saw their power in the heat and the cool. To, you know, they are able to mobilize people across the country. Um, and uh, the whole idea of, you know, a, a Jew doesn't raise a hand against another Jew, the kind of bumper stickers that were seen across, uh, across the country in 2005 and 2006, I think, has also scarred the Israeli public. Those images of, you know, brother against brother dragging people out of uh, their homes in Gaza um, is the image of a civil war that people in Israel are, you know, that's that's the nightmare of Israeli society. I want to talk about this sense of betrayal a little bit more. In your previous book, you're now working on a new book, but in your previous book, you talked about the idea of the settler as the new pioneer. And these people were physically dragged from their homes. Many of them were children who are now in the political sphere. And they saw this huge failure of the Israel that that they loved, that the land of Israel that they were raised to devote their whole lives to, turning on them and 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 just crashing their lives down. Don't you think that this is more of a driving force than the fact that Hamas is in Gaza? I think that the messaging um, on all levels was was terrible. There was no real game plan for what happens the day after the withdrawal, or at least if there was, uh, we don't exactly understand how it came to be that Hamas has now been in charge and obviously has not turned out to be a peaceful, you know, neighbor to Israel. Um, but certainly, I think any you know disengagement that happens in the future cannot be modeled on that of um, of of Gaza. Not only was it the image of people being dragged out of their homes physically and the you know betrayal of ideals that you know these are the new Zionist pioneers post 1967. Um, it's also, I think, the sense that those who were taken out of their homes, um, you know, there was no game plan for them in the weeks and months and years ahead. And they remained underserved and disaffected and angry and uh, ready to mobilize against the state. And, uh, you know, it creates, I think, a very dangerous element within society that feels entirely um, entirely forsaken. And uh, if you imagine that on a mass scale in the West Bank, uh, it's 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 almost impossible to understand not only how this would, um, you know, benefit the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like how would that actually take place on a much larger scale than in Gaza, which was only 8,000 people, which maybe isn't a lot, but, you know, uh, maybe is a lot, but isn't, isn't the same scale as the West Bank, but also how, how could Israeli society survive um, another Hidnakut on a very large scale? And so now we're faced with a coalition that is doing its utmost to make sure that there will never be another disengagement as as was and maybe as could have been had it been planned a little better. And do you think that they will have this ripple effect towards the future and make it so that there will never be any hope for a Palestinian state? Well, I mean, I think it's dependent on what the international community is going to envision as the territory of a future Palestinian state, even if every single settler stayed in their home, which was basically what was envisioned under the Trump peace plan. 
um, that would create a Palestinian state on, say, 40% of the West Bank. There are microstates that exist in the world, but would that satisfy the Palestinian people? I highly doubt it. Um, so I think it's really going to depend on what, you know, the the the, the compromise between the ideal and the real. Um, I do think that the settlement block concept is still functional for the most part with, you know, with very um, worrying exceptions, particularly in the Jerusalem area. Um so I don't think that that uh, I don't think the entire uh, rubric of Oslo has been destroyed, but uh, it's also it's it's not only what's happening on the ground; it's what's happening in people's minds. Will they tolerate uh, another hidna kut of some scale in exchange for peace? And what kind what will that peace look like? Because if it looks like what you know people thought it was going to look like in Gaza, I think it's a non-starter. You talk about. The idea of envisioning the peace of the day after, the day after disengagement, the day after a ceasefire, the day after pieces broke out. How do you see that? Well, I'm really worried when I hear people on the left, right, and center saying, you know, um, you know, what is the, what does it look like the day after the occupation ends? And you know, you'll hear this refrain, you know, from from groups on the left, but also from groups on the right that want the, you know, essentially the occupation to continue. And I don't think anybody has really done enough thinking to know what 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 the, what that looks like. What is Palestinian civil society capable of in those moments? Could any settlers remain in their midst? Um, you know, even and ironically, uh, uh, Rashida Talib, you know, mentioned uh, about uh, Nakba Day that she also feels some hesitation of settlers leaving their own home, seeing the Palestinian experience in 1948. Um, what, you know, what will the international community be willing to support and, you know, possibly even fund? I, I, I think there's a lot of open questions, but um it's one thing to bang the drum and say this is the policy that should happen, but it's another thing to try to enforce that without having any understanding of what uh, the day after looks like. So if you want to say let's end the occupation, settle, but have a plan for what's going to happen after that because that's a very dangerous and unstable moment that doesn't justify perpetuating you know, patterns and policies that have been in existence since 1967. But I do think that some thinking needs to be done about what exactly it looks like the day after peace emerges, because there are going to be a lot of betrayed people on many, on all sides, uh, who no longer have an understanding of their world, their whole universe will change overnight. Um, and it's very hard for human beings to catch up to that. So I think we need to be preparing the groundwork for that, not just from military, economic and defense perspective, but also from a human perspective about how to prepare people in civil society, you know, individuals and groups for, for that major transition. It's a transition that so many in Israel don't think will ever happen. And we are, as you said, uh, in this stalemate situation where the occupation continues. And it just doesn't seem like there's any readiness, willingness, or desire. Well, to- maybe if people could dream about what that would look like, maybe that would help people begin to think about it. Um, I'm not saying that, that they will necessarily you know, shift ideologically, but maybe they might have more empathy for the, the situation and what needs to change in the future. But, of course, Israel or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict isn't the only conflict around the world that's had to grapple with these questions, and not all of them have been so successful in other places either. It's a very difficult process and one that's very unstable. Give us an example of a success story. 
Well, I think the, you know, the success story that everybody's pointing to in the news right now is Northern Ireland, which, you know, commemorated the 25th year of, you know, the the peace in Northern Ireland only about a month ago, you know, right right around the time that, you know, people were starting to worry about rockets shooting off again um, here, you know, the, you know, the television was full of pictures of um, a successful or quote unquote successful peace process in Northern Ireland. But I think there's, you know, a lot simmering under the surface there, you know, tensions that have not resolved, the rearming of militant groups, uh, the remaining uh, isolation between different religious and ethnic factions that, you know, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of a cold peace in a way, um, which may be better than no peace, but I think we need to look around the world to other examples to help us envision what the future here might look like and maybe begin to dream a little bit, but with modest expectations. As we mentioned, you're working on a new book. Can you give us a little preview of what the idea is? I'm thrilled to be here finally after three years away from Israel, um, and I'm resuming the research on a new book project that's called New Day in Babylon and Jerusalem, Zionism, Jewish Power and Identity Politics since 1967, which is a real mouthful, but it's essentially a way of looking at the decades in the 1960s and 1970s as the first iteration of all a lot of the contemporary debates we're having about Zionism and progressive politics, Zionism and identity politics, Black Jewish relations, and how, you know, essentially it's becoming increasingly incompatible for a young Zionist, uh, maybe on college campus, people that I work with, you know, population I work with all the time to both invest in their Zionist and Jewish identities, as well as be, you know, comfortable and productive in a lot of identity politics spaces. And how did we get to that point? And I think we can find the answers to some of those questions 50 years ago, and maybe to try to remind my readers of how these debates played out the first time, um, some paths not taken back in the 1960s and 70s, where we might go from here, learning from the past. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. It was lovely to be here. Several groups of young religious teenagers wandered around the Old City's Muslim Quarter during the annual flag march. Among them were a pair of friends who came to, they said, demonstrate for Jewish identity. When asked how they thought the local Arab population might feel about the march, the pair said, of course it bothers them. It bothers me that they're in my country. Special thanks to the Times of Israel's own Carrie Keller-Lynn and Jeremy Sharon for their on-site reporting and sound samples. This episode was recorded at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem with sound technician Jamal Rishek. What Matters Now is produced and edited by The Pod Waves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.